you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me begin my timer or else the worship leader, who is also my wife, might kill me if we have to cut a song. So uh, the timer's on. Let's, Let's do this. Well, thanks be to God for his word and thanks be to God in particular for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, who's enjoyed the teaching series Rebuild through these, through these books. Look, speaking for myself, it hasn't been easy going at times. It's kind of tough going through these books and there's been some challenges, uh, but all God's word is profitable uh, and it's been great to kind of journey through them. As, uh, as was mentioned earlier, today is actually our final week in this Rebuild series. Uh, next week, we've got church camp. Following week, we then kick up with the, uh, the left and right series. And so uh, this morning, we're going to land in chapter 9 and 10. So turn there with me. Uh, and as you do, let me just remind you, last week when we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, we kind of learned that God's great building project or rebuilding project wasn't just a physical one, right? Because in Nehemiah chapter 7, the, the wall is finished. So in Ezra, we see the temple rebuilt. In chapter 7 of Nehemiah, we see the, the, the wall rebuilt. But the book doesn't end there. It continues because God's end game isn't just to rebuild his people physically, right? Restore the physical place in Jerusalem with the temple and the wall. But rather, God's end game is to spiritually restore, rebuild, and renew his people. And so last week, we see God begin this project of rebuilding his people from the inside out. And he does that by reintroducing his people to his word. And that was chapter 8. And now chapter 9 and 10 are an outworking of what happens when God's people return to the word, and we see the power of the word to bring spiritual renewal in God's people. Before we jump into chapter 9 of Nehemiah, let me just share a little bit of my own story just by way of uh, introducing or giving the context for how Israel are, are feeling at this point when we meet them in chapter 9. Uh, so myself, I became a Christian at the age of 16 and a half, roughly. It was uh, year 11 at school in term 3, and there were kind of two big factors that God used to, to bring me to faith in Christ. Uh, the first factor was my year 11 chemistry teacher. And the second factor was my desire to become school captain. All right. Now, here's how those things came together. So I went to a Christian school, 
Uh, my family, my parents were kind of more good, moral, conservative people, but we didn't grow up going to church and um, reading the Bible or anything like that. But going to a Christian school, I felt like I'd had Christianity figured out. I felt like I understood what it was about and what this Jesus person was about, but I felt like it just wasn't for me. And my particular hang-up, uh, I kind of prodded myself on being the science guy, very arrogant in my intelligence. I did the whole physics and chemistry and maths and all of that. And, and so I had this kind of, you know, I couldn't see how science and, and Christianity or the Bible uh, aligned, had all these hang-ups and objections. And so the first thing there was I had this chemistry teacher who I think, you know, God obviously used him greatly in my life. And, and he would sort of plant certain questions or comments that would make me just kind of begin to question or begin to kind of rethink some of the assumptions that I had. The second factor was my desire to become school captain. All right. And so I'm in, I'm in a Christian school, and I was a pretty driven, motivated kid, wanted to kind of build the resume, classic that kind of person. And, you know, I wanted to become school captain. Now, the only issue was it was a Christian school, and I wasn't a Christian. And so I thought, you know, how can I get around this? And so I got the application, you know, a pack or whatever it was, and uh, essentially you had to write down uh, something spiritual that you had done. And I thought, well, that's vague enough. You know, I can kind of do something spiritual, put that on the resume, on the application, and maybe they'll kind of get hoodwinked. That was my plan. So my year 11 chemistry teacher, I knew he was running a Bible study all right, through the book of Ephesians at lunchtime. And I thought to myself, great, I can kind of go along, try and derail the Ephesians side, but have some more questions about science and some of my objections addressed. And at six lunchtimes, you know, six handball sessions to give up, I can do that, right? And so I go along, and long story short, um, I had this realisation pretty early on that my understanding of sin was just completely off. So heading into that Bible study, I had this kind of idea that sin was you know, really bad things that really bad people did. That's kind of how I thought about it. I wouldn't have included myself in the category of sinner because I hadn't done really bad things, and I wasn't a really bad person. And through this study, I think it was like week two or something, it became pretty obvious to me that from the Bible's perspective, that the category sinner is a pretty inclusive category, right? No one falls outside of the category of sinner. And I began to get this sort of uncomfortable feeling. Right? Like I wasn't even sure if I had really believed in this God of the Bible, but I remember sitting in this study feeling uncomfortable, overwhelmed by this potential reality that this God who apparently has made me and given me life and breath and everything, I kind of had just disregarded for 16 years of my life. If he is the one who's, as I'm learning in the study through Ephesians, given me my gifts and my abilities and everything, and I failed to worship him, I'm just sitting there feeling like, what is this feeling? I feel uncomfortable. I feel overwhelmed. Now, looking back, in hindsight, that was the Holy Spirit beginning to, to work in my heart to convict me of sin. And long story short, God then used that process to eventually lead me to faith in Christ through that um, Bible study through Ephesians. But the reason I share that is because that moment when I was 16 and a half in that Bible study at lunch, feeling uncomfortable and overwhelmed by this, like I wasn't even sure what sin was before that, if I was convinced by it, but I was feeling like I was a sinner. All right? It moved from this level of understanding what sin is conceptually to, oh crap, I'm a sinner. And that transition, that kind of like head understanding to a, a heart knowledge, that feeling of the weight of sin, that's where we find Israel this morning here in chapter 9 of, of Nehemiah. 
So turn there with me. Let's pray, ask God to bless our time together. And we're going to jump straight in to chapter 9 and see what God would have for us in these chapters. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive. It's active. It can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we pray this morning by your spirit you would do just that. You would expose our sin. You would expose where we're trusting in ourselves and not your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would sharpen our minds, you would strengthen our wills, and you would soften our hearts. We pray you do all of this for your glory, for the renown of your son, the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 9, let's get cracking. First one. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. These three things, right? These external signs, fasting, in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. These are an external expression of an inward reality, right? Chapter 8, the law of Moses is read, right? To the people, they gather together. Ezra preaches for like six hours. I'm not going to preach that long, right? But it's a long sermon, right? And, and, and the people who are God's covenant people who have been returned exiles hear of what was required of them as, as God's covenant people, and they learn of how they have fallen short, right? And what this, these three external signs show is an inward reality right, of remorse over sin. Right? They, they feel overwhelmed by their disobedience and their covenant breaking. And so they gather together in fasting, in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. Verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And the first part of that verse there, separating themselves from all foreigners, is significant. Because you may remember... Right? When, when God brings his people from the wilderness into the promised land, he gives them very clear instruction with regards to who they ought to marry and who they ought not marry. Right, read with me from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. It's up on the screen. God says this to his people as they enter the land in regards to who they should marry. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then... The anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. It's pretty clear, right? Who should you marry? Only those inside the people of God, not those outside of the people of God, the foreigners. Now, just to be clear, this isn't a racially motivated command from the Lord. Like God's not being a racist here. This comes from a place, a regard for the holiness of his people. Right? He knows that if they marry the foreigners, those outside of the people of God, then their obedience, their holiness will be compromised. Right? And so the, the God's people from the get-go, right, they enter the promised land, and if you kind of have read Joshua, you know things go south, they go poorly pretty quickly. They begin intermarrying with the foreigners and do the very thing that God tells them not to do. Now, you may remember at the end of Ezra, right, the final chapter, we see Ezra uh, speaking out against the people. Why? Because they're, they're, they're these returned exiles, they're back in the land, the temple's rebuilt, but they're still marrying the foreigners, and that's the external action, but that shows an internal heart posture of a disregard for the commands of the Lord. And so here, it's very promising that we see these returned exiles you know, in this kind of humble posture, separating themselves from the foreigners. It shows that they are now having a regard for what God requires of them for his laws and his commands. second part of the verse says this, "...and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers." So the, the, the conviction of sin they feel in their heart leads to a confession of sin with their mouths. And the first thing they do is confess the sins of their fathers, right? They're the previous generations, and we'll see that as we get into the prayer throughout this chapter. 
All right? they're, they're aware of how the previous generations have failed to obey God and keep the covenant. But it's not just enough right, to kind of see the sin of others. It's relatively easy. Hey? We can kind of pick the sins out in other people a lot easier sometimes. What's important is that we turn the, the, the sort of diagnosis toward ourselves, right? and we see our own sin. And that's what's happening here for these returned exiles as they gather together. They not only confess the sins of their fathers, but they confess their own sins. That's important to see. Verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord, their God. There's three things we see here, right? We've got the word, we've got confession, we've got worship. What that means for us is this. For the people of God, confession of sin ought not be this horrible, you know, awful experience, but rather it ought to be a joyful, you know, gratitude-filling experience. So firstly, it's in the context of the word, right? We hear the word read, just like these returned exiles did last week in chapter 8. The word is read. We learn of our requirement, what God requires of us. We feel convicted of our sin, and there's this confession moment. But the confession is done in the context of worship, because as we feel the weight of our sin... As a part of the people of God, this is a positive experience, right? Because it drives us deeper into the grace and mercy of the Lord our God, which we'll see in just a moment. But these three things here work in relationship to each other for the people of God. The word, confession, and worship. Now we see in verse 4 the, the Levites, right, the priestly tribe, kind of represent the people and, and put words to this internal feeling of, of conviction of sin through a prayer of repentance, and the bulk of this chapter is a prayer of repentance. Chapter 9 and 10, the outline is actually pretty simple. Right? Chapter 9 is all about when God's people repent. And chapter 10 is about when God's people recommit. And so now we're going to get into this prayer of repentance that is prayed on behalf of the people. And we'll pick it up in verse 5. So the Levites stand up and pray this prayer. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing, and praise. We learn here that the foundation of you know, confession of sin or, or right understanding of sin is a right understanding of who God is, his nature and his character. The prayer begins by uh, asserting God's etern- eternity, right? He, he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, that he is infinitely glorious, he is worthy of all praise, he is majestic above all else. And so the foundation of any confession of sin. It comes from rightly understanding who God is. Verse 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worship you. So after seeing that God is eternal, that he is worthy of all praise, we see that he is the creator God, that he is the maker and sustainer of everyone and everything. Now over against the, the polytheism, Right, of the, the day of these returned exiles, the original hearers here, and over against the atheism and the agnosticism that can prevail in our day, God's people assert that God is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the one true and living God. Now, here's why it's important. Because if God made you, if God made us, then we are accountable to him. We are accountable to him for our actions and our worship. You might be here this morning and you're not even sure about if you believe in God. There's a sense in which, irrespective of what you think about God, right, you're accountable to him. Your actions matter. Your worship matter. 
And so we see at the beginning of this prayer, there's this assertion that God is eternal, his nature, his character, all right, that he is infinitely glorious and that he is creator God of whom we are accountable to. Now we pick it up in verse 7. And really here the, the prayer kind of shifts into this kind of history of Israel. Now not all of Israel's history is covered here, but what's kind of highlighted or the, or the theme that kind of organizes this history is God's redemptive grace to his people. Let's pick it up in verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham, or Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So throw back here to Genesis 12, okay, when God makes a covenant with Abram, then becomes Abraham. And there's a few things we're meant to note here. Firstly, we see God's initiating grace. Okay, the narrative doesn't go that Abraham says, Hey God, I've got a great idea. If you want to just sort of uh, partner with me, we can kind of make this great spiritual nation, we can make this great covenant. That's what happens, right? It's a unilateral action from God. God's grace is grace that initiates. He, he comes to Abraham, or Abram first, renames him Abraham, and makes this great covenant with him. He makes these great promises to him. Now, some of these promises are, are spiritual and some are physical. And what's highlighted here is this promise of land. Now, that, why that's included here is because you've got to remember the context. Right? God's, uh, these, these exiles have been exiled from the land that God promised uh, Israel, and now they're returning. Okay? And the point here is to remind these original hearers of God's faithfulness to his promise, the promise he made to Abraham regarding this great land, which they were you know, exiled out of on account of their sin, and now they've been brought back into. They're meant to kind of go and understand that God is faithful and he keeps his promise. Now, the thing just to note here, we see this kind of phrase that God found his heart faithful. Does that mean there was some kind of inherent righteousness within Abraham that God went, you know, sort of on the lookout, boom, that guy, he's got it, he's got that righteousness, let's go for him. We know from Romans that's not the case, right? The kind of righteousness that's referred to here is actually a deep trust in a great promise that God made, even though it seemed impossible. Okay, that's the kind of righteousness that's being referred to here, that faithfulness, when God makes a great promise to him regarding this spiritual blessings and, and physical blessings that Abraham, despite all the odds, believes him, trusts him, and it's accounted to him as righteousness. But starting with Abraham, the, the, the original hearers are meant to kind of be thinking about God's grace, that he's committed to his people, and God keeps his promise. Then we move to verse 9, we move now to the book of Exodus, Verse 9, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you know, you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. At this point, we're into Exodus, right? At this point, God's promise to kind of give Abraham a number of descendants is starting to come into fruition. God's people are now in Egypt escaping famine, and they've, they've multiplied, right? They're now a big nation, but they find themselves in slavery, all right? Pharaoh is not a fan of them as we know, and they find themselves under inhumane conditions of slavery. 
Right? They cry out to God for deliverance. And Exodus actually begins by saying that God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham that we've just spoken about and seen in the verses above. And on account of that covenant, that promise he made to God's people, he raises up a deliverer. That deliverer is Moses. And through Moses, he, he delivers his people. We're going to go, we're going to go into all the detail of Exodus. But again, this is here to kind of show, uh, show God's people and show the hearers of this prayer that God is committed to his people. All right? That he has delivered them from slavery. Pick it up in verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. Here is the giving of the law. Now, quick question. Did God save his people out of slavery in Egypt because of their ability to obey the law? Hands up for yes. Hands up for no. Hey, the Bible literacy is high here. It's good. The reason why you know the answer is no is because we've just seen there, right, the, the order is important. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt before he gives them the law. See, sometimes we have this kind of perspective in the Old Covenant, right, in the Old Testament, that you know, God is, is you know, giving his people the law and um, you know, on the basis of their obedience or whatever, he's going to be gracious or not. Now, there's a sense to that, which we'll pick up later. But it's important to see here, right, the order of operations for God. Right? He first initiates with grace. Right? He first saves and delivers them, not based on their ability to kind of keep the, the law and the statutes that he's going to give them, but because of his character, his grace, his mercy. Only then, once they are his saved, delivered people, does he want them to then express kind of that, that their status as God's saved people by obeying his law. Not to gain deliverance, not to gain freedom, because they already have it, but as an expression of gratitude for the way that God has saved them and has delivered them. We see in verse 15, God's grace continues to them. You gave them bread from heaven and for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now at this point in the prayer, all things looking good. All right, We've got God as, as eternal, God as infinitely glorious, God as the creator God to whom we are accountable, God being gracious to Abraham, God delivering his people in, uh, in Egypt, God giving them the law, it's a good thing. And then in verse 15, or 16, sorry, things take a pretty deep dive. Let's pick it up. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Things do not go well for the people of God. And this final uh, little phrase here, that they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, it's actually a throwback to Numbers. All right, this little episode in the wilderness all right, where God's people are kind of gathered together and, and you know, you'd imagine at this point they'd be just incredibly grateful to God, right? They've been in slavery, in humane conditions. God's rescued them. Now they're getting food and water delivered to them. You'd imagine they'd be pretty grateful. But in Numbers, in this little episode that's being referred to here, we actually see them gathering together, whinging, complaining that their lot in life is worse now than it was back in Egypt. And they kind of have this great plan to let's gather together, let's, divide, let's, let's appoint a leader and get that leader to lead us back into Egypt because things were better in Egypt. Now this is meant to illustrate the sinfulness of sin. All right, you've got these people who have been saved, who have been delivered, 
rescued, and they want to return to their slavery. They're not worshipping God. They're upset with God. They're annoyed at God. And before we're too quick to judge Israel here, we're meant to take a bit of a look in the mirror as well. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, all right, we're all guilty of the exact same thing the Israelites have done here. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, that means you have been delivered. You've tasted the, the joy and the freedom of being delivered from sin's power. You've experienced the joy of living inside the commands of God and, and living in alignment with how he would want, have you to live. And yet, often, we want to try and return to Egypt. We try and return to our sin. We're not, great, we're not praising God for his grace. We're actually a bit upset with him. Life's hard. Life's not going as it ought to. Sometimes we, like the Israelites here, think that the best life possible is lived outside of the commands of God, not inside the commands of God. So before we're too quick to judge the Israelites here, we have to acknowledge that this great sin that we see this wilderness generation commit is not that dissimilar to how we can commit a sin like this against God. We too can complain and whinge about our lot in life and not praise God for what he's done for us. But there's another but coming up in verse 17. and says this, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and who committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them by, in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. And you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. The light of God's grace shines even brighter on the darkness of human sin. The golden calf episode it's a, again, illustrates how wicked sin is. And God's rescued them, and they make this golden calf and say, thank you, golden calf, you have rescued me. There's no one in which when you read through the Old Testament, you think, when is God going to forsake these people? Come on, God. And yet, he is so committed to his people, he will not forsake them. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now the purpose here, right, for these original hearers, these exiled or returning exiles, is that maybe if they're, they're overwhelmed by their sin, right? They have just, in the previous chapter, heard of all that they were meant to do as God's covenant people and how far they have fallen short of that. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, will God forsake us? You know, will God forgive me? And in this prayer, the Levites are reminding these returned exiles of how God has acted in the past, that he has been faithful, he's been gracious, in the face of wickedness and rebellion, he is committed to his people. I went to read this and be shocked, overwhelmed by how gracious God is to this, to this people, despite their sin. And we too need to hear that message here this morning. Because perhaps you're here this morning and you, you're acutely aware of some pretty bad things you've done. And if you're honest, you feel like maybe God will forsake you. Perhaps you are a Christian here this morning, and, and you're in a really bad rut of just repeated sin. All right, and you think, maybe this is the one where God will just, he's done with me. He'll forsake me. Perhaps you this morning, you're not a Christian. Uh, and, and if you're honest, you really think that you're too far gone. Right? Your life, your past is, is, is you know, marked by too much. Maybe you wouldn't call it sin, but you know, bad things. You, know, you wouldn't want to darken the doors of a church. That kind of attitude. 
Maybe you wouldn't say that verbally, but inside you feel that. You need to hear the word this morning that God is a, a God who is patient and merciful. He is ready and willing to forgive. And sometimes we take that for granted. Of course God's gracious. Of course God's forgiving. But we ought not. One of my best mates is a Muslim. Right? And this idea that God is infinitely gracious and merciful, to him that's an affront against God's power and holiness. The beauty of Christianity is that God's holiness and his, his character shines all the more by how gracious he is to sinners like you and me. Verse 22 to verse 25 just continues to highlight in Israel's history God's grace. Despite this wilderness generation being stiff-necked, obstinate, sinful, right, he brings them into this promised land, this good land. He gives them uh, you know, a great inheritance of children, of land, of, of vineyards that you know, produce this great yield. Again, we're reading this prayer going, wow, God is so good and gracious to sinful people. Verse 26 picks up in the book of Judges where they're, despite God's continual kindness, continual grace, they continue the people to sin. They continue to be faithless. There's this pattern, I won't read it in the sake of time, but there's this pattern of you know, the people forget about God. All right? And then God judges them for their, for their sin and, and rebellion by uh, letting their enemies kind of overtake them. They cry out to God for deliverance. God sends a saviour or a judge. We went through this book a couple years ago at church uh, and God delivers them. And this kind of cycle repeats itself a number of times until we get to verse 31, which really everything in this prayer leads up to verse 31 and, and tries to kind of convince or persuade these returned exiles, these original hearers of this reality. Verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. In the context of feeling overwhelmed by their covenant breaking, the Levites in this prayer are trying to persuade the people that God will not forsake you because he is gracious and merciful. Now, in response to all that has gone before in this prayer, two things happen. The first one is a petition that is made on behalf of the people. Verse 32. Now, therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. What that means is this. The reference to Assyria, it just means from the time where Assyria came and obliterated us and sent us into exile, things haven't been great for us. And even now... There's this acknowledgement, yes, we're back in the temple, yes, the wall's rebuilt, yes, we're all here gathering around the word, but we are a far cry from the former glory of the kingdom under David and Solomon, right? Whether this autonomous kind of nation, they're they're far from that. And the the, the proceeding verses from there see that although they're in the land, although things are positive in one sense, they're still slaves, right? They're still slaves to the Persians. There's this assertion that even our crops, our, our bodies even, are slaves. Things are not the way they ought to be. And so in light of God's mercy to them in the past and past generations, they now make a petition to God to say, God, deliver us. God, help us. That's the first thing we see. And the second thing we see is they make a a covenant renewal ceremony happen, which is our second point for this morning. Before we get there, what are we we to make of chapter 9? What's the big take-home for us here as as, 21st century Christians? What are we meant to take from that? The first thing is this. Right, the, the, the gateway into the Christian life, into the kingdom of God, right, is confession of sin, is, is repentance. It's one thing to know about sin, right? It's a whole other thing entirely to know that you're a sinner. 
That's that moment that I had when I was 16. That's the moment that every person has to be a regenerate Christian, right? Where sin goes from some abstract theological concept to a, oh crap moment where I'm a sinner. I'm included in that diagnosis. That's why Christians ought to be the most humble people there ever is, right? Because what the gospel says to you and I is, you think you're okay? You're actually more sinful and flawed than you dare imagine. All right, let that sink in a little bit, all right? That's why you really... It doesn't matter how much someone compliments you, you should never be puffed up. Because you know, deep down, right, how flawed, how sinful you truly are. And the first thing that the Word of God does when it comes to, comes to bear in our hearts is actually shine a light on our sin. Right, that's the first step. Uh, Nathan Coles, he, he uh, lived in the 1700s, and he became a Christian under George Whitfield. I've got a quote here, if you want to find it, it's on the screen as well. And, and he kind of reflects on his experience of becoming a Christian. He says this, it's a great quote. My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessing my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. I love that phrase, a heart wound. That's what happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word and presses it into your heart. There's this heart wound that happens. The heart blow, where you just feel overwhelmed by what you've done, rebelled against God. It's not just kind of, you know, concern about the consequences of your sin and what that means for your life. It's not selfish guilt. Right? There's this, I've sinned against the one who made me and has been infinitely good to me. Right? That's what repentance looks like. It's this change of, of mind where we, we're not mindful of God, his law, his commands, his love. And then we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. The entry point into the Christian faith is repentance and acknowledgement of sin but if the only time you felt convicted by sin is when you first become a christian that's a serious problem <laughs> all right because the the christian life martin luther famously said is a one of repentance right repentance is all of life we are daily ought to be reading the word being convicted of sin confessing that sin worshiping him for his grace there's this pattern there's this rhythm again why christians ought to be the most humble people out it's because we are constantly being reminded of our sin, all right, being convicted. So let me ask you a few questions. When's the last time you felt grieved? Like, grieved to the point where maybe you're not putting sackcloth and earth on your face, all right, but what that expresses from an inward perspective, when have you last felt that? Maybe you can reflect on a time when you felt that, when you became a Christian. But what about in the Christian life, right? Are we spending enough time in God's word and letting the spirit press upon us where we're falling short and feeling the weight of our sin? Let me encourage us as a church to be those who are marked by repentance. All right. and repentance is only possible, though, when we are secure right, in God's grace. We're going to go to God and, and confess our sin unless we are confident that he is ready to forgive. And that's the whole purpose of this prayer to this point, right? Is to, conf- to, to persuade the, the returned exiles to be honest about their sin because God is ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful. And if you doubt that, we reflect on Israel's history and see how God has been so kind and so merciful to them. So that's the first thing we see, chapter 9, God's people repent. Chapter 10, we see God's people recommit. So in, in response to all this prayer, there's kind of two things. Firstly, they petition God to help them, you know, restore them to this kind of national autonomy. It's kind of more political. The second thing they do all right, is, is kind of take matters into their own hand a little bit. They kind of realize, okay, we got ourselves in this mess because we broke God's covenant. Got exiled, we're back, let's not screw it up this time. All right, they've been reminded of this covenant that God made with Moses and they're meant to be partakers of and keep. And so they want to get together and say, let's recommit. Let's kind of really keep the law this time so things don't go south again. 
So they get together in the first sort of part of chapter 10. There's a bunch of names. They're the people who kind of sign on this document they create to kind of say, hey, we're really committed to keeping the law of the Lord. We pick it up in verse 28. It says this, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of the God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all, do all, the commandments of the law, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. You may remember uh, Deuteronomy, right before they go into the land, there's like a bunch of uh, blessings and curses that are conditioned upon Israel keeping the law. If you obey, here's all these blessings you'll get. If you, if you don't, here's all these curses. And that's what these uh, returned exiles are doing here. They're coming back together and saying, we're recommitting ourselves to this law of Moses. If we keep the law, fantastic, blessings. But if we break the law, curses. They take their effort, right? they take their willpower, and they say, let's apply it to the end of obeying the law of Moses. Now, there is something quite good about what they're doing. There is something where we should take them as an example. right? When you're convicted of sin, and you feel the weight of that, you confess to God, and there's this kind of recommitment to live in light of God's you know, God's ways and his commands for you. But ultimately, for these returned exiles, spoiler alert, things don't go well for them. All right, within eight years, they're no longer giving tithes to the priest, they're no longer keeping Sabbath, all right, they're, uh, they're, they're intermarrying with the foreigners. This zeal to kind of obey the law, it falls short. And there's a sense in which the old covenant was never meant to be God's end game. All right? Pick it up with me in Jeremiah 31. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The old covenant was good in itself, but it was conditional. It was conditioned upon the ability of the Israelites to obey and keep the commandments. And because of sin, they were unable to keep the covenant. They broke the covenant. The old covenant was there, it was designed to reveal to Israel their sin. Right? When the law, when the God's requirements are spoken to us, it's designed to help us realize that we are sinners. Right? Israel were meant to hear the old covenant and realize how sinful they were and long for a savior, long for a new covenant. And in Jeremiah, we see this new covenant promised. And this new covenant came with the coming of Christ. So we ask ourselves the question, why is it so important that Jesus lived a perfect life? It was so important right, because he did what Israel couldn't. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the Lord. He kept the law of, law, of the Lord perfectly. Paul in Romans says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
You see, the returned exile's desire and zeal to obey the law and let's just do this thing, ultimately it was ineffective. Because of sin, they were unable to do that. We need a saviour who can keep the law on our behalf. And that is the beauty of the gospel. God sends his son who keeps the righteous requirement of the law. But then Jesus dies on a cross after being perfect, and we think, what's going on there? You see, the ultimate curse of covenant breaking is dying on a cross. And we think, but, but Jesus kept the covenant. That's the point. Right, Jesus dies on the cross, bearing the punishment for all covenant breakers like you and me. Right, so that in him, we can receive the righteous requirement that in ourselves we do not have. See, the old covenant was conditioned upon the obedience of sinful people. The new covenant, the promises of the new covenant, are conditioned upon the obedience of a sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus. Right? The promises that were given in the old covenant, they were kind of up for grabs, right? If you kept the, if you kept the, the, the commands, great, blessing. But if not, curses. But the promises of the new covenant, forgiveness of sin, restored relationship to God, heaven, these promises are secure because they are not reliant on our ability, but Christ's ability. And Christ, the sinless saviour, kept the law perfectly. He gives us that righteousness. He dies bearing, the, bearing the, the curse for covenant breakers like you and me. And in his death, he creates a new covenant. I'll invite the band up as we uh, bring this to a conclusion. So here's the question, right? When you and I, as God's people, this side of the cross, feel convicted by our sin, what do we do? Well, first, that's a great thing. It's a good thing to feel convicted and overwhelmed by the weight of sin. We ought to confess that to God, knowing that he is gracious, knowing that he is merciful. And our advantage this side of the cross, compared to God's people on the other side of the cross, prior to the cross, is that we know, because there's this kind of tension or mystery in the Old Testament. On the one hand, God is gracious and he is merciful, he's willing to forgive, and yet he is, he is righteous and he is just, and he will not let sin go unpunished. And so in the Old Testament, the saints are kind of told, look, trust God, confess your sin, he is merciful, he'll forgive you. But there's probably this question of, well, how can he do the two? Right? How can he be merciful, how can he be gracious and be, be just and uphold his righteousness? Right? We know how God did that, right? The solution is the cross. Jesus upholds the righteous requirement of the law. He dies for it, taking the punishment for our sin so that God can be both the justifier and the just, gracious and righteous. And so when we sin and we, when we feel convicted, we confess that. But when it comes to this recommitment, right, how do we commit to kind of living uh, in, you know, a more holy life? There is a new covenant Christian way to do that that's different to the old covenant Christians. We first look back to the cross. We remember that Jesus' death broke the power of sin. But the second thing we have to do, all right, we have to remember that Christ has given us his Holy Spirit. When I first became a Christian, I remember reading what Jesus said about, you know, I must go, and when I go, I will send the, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit. I remember thinking, what a dumb idea. Why don't you just stay and just show everyone that you're alive? <laughs> it made no sense to me. And he said, it's better. It's, 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 it's of a great advantage to you that I go, that I might send the Holy Spirit. And we think back to Jeremiah and that new covenant promise, I will write the law on your heart. Not on tablets of stone like in the Old Covenant, but the Spirit of God right, dwells within the heart of every believer. How powerful is that Holy Spirit? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Let that sink in. Right? We have incredible privileges as God's new covenant people. So we too should share that 
heart intent that these returned exiles have to, to obey the Lord, to not sin. But the way we do that is altogether different because Christ has come and he has brought a new covenant, a covenant that is secure by the blood of Christ. And now we have the spirit indwelling. Uh, we look to Christ. We remember that the, the power of sin has been broken. We look to the spirit to help us glorify God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder this morning that as we are sinful, right? it's not a popular thing to talk about in our world, and yet it's such, uh, it gives such explanatory power for our lives and understanding ourselves. Because we are more flawed and sinful than we can ever dare imagine. And yet in light of that, we are just blown away by how gracious you are to us. You are more gracious and merciful than we ever could dare imagine to. So we praise you for that. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you that through the, the death of Christ, you brought in a new covenant that we are recipients of, that the blessings of that covenant are secure because we're not, not based on our obedience, but because of Christ's obedience and his work on our behalf. We praise you for that. As we go this week, I pray you would help us to live in light of this great privilege as those who have the Spirit of God indwelling within us. Help us to remember that that Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. When we're convicted of sin, help us to be those who are honest and real with sin. Confess it to you. And then ask you to help us by your Spirit to live for you. It's in your sons, let me pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.